15A0018, Dustin Putnell versus the state, Crystal Bice for appellant, Jordan Stover for appellee. Whenever you are ready, uh, Ms. Bice. May it please the court. My name is Crystal Bice. I am the uh, counsel for the appellant, Dustin Drew Putnell, in this case. I will ask to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. The crux of the issue before this court is whether Mr. Putnell, the appellant in this case, has the right to confidential access to his de <coughs> defense consultants in his capital case. The answer to that is yes. into the microphone. Yes, Your Honor, thank, thank you. This court has rightfully directed our attention to Zant v. Brantley, and because I think that that case is directly on point, I would like to take a moment to discuss that as it relates to Mr. Putnell's case. In Brantley, uh, Mr. Brantley had filed a motion for a new trial, and with that motion to investigate any potential claims, he had obtained a psychiatrist. And the warden in the particular prison that was holding him required an access order, much like the Polk County Sheriff's Department requires. And based on that requirement, Brantley petitioned ex parte <coughs> the trial court for an access order, much like the one that we have petitioned for in this particular case, in order for his psychiatrist to be able to enter to the jail, um, the prison, to conduct the assessment in that particular case. <coughs> The warden, once the access order was served upon him, objected. The trial court then conducted a hearing to determine whether or not the uh, ex parte access order should be upheld. Based on the warden's objection, he, he raised two issues. One was a jurisdictional issue. He was claiming that the out-of-county trial court had no jurisdiction to order him to compel, uh, to comply with the access order. The second issue that he raised was the issue that's at the crux of this case, which was that the district attorney's office should not have been excluded and should have been able to participate in the jurisdictional question. And as a result, the trial court upheld the access order and the warden appealed. This court on appeal applied the Brooks standard, which is a weighing test to determine the differing interest at stake to determine whether or not the district attorney should have been allowed into the, um, the hearing and the, whether or not the issue should have been ex parte. In conducting that weigh weighing test, uh, the court balanced the interest of the state versus the interest of the defendant in the particular case. And in that case, this court found that the state had no interest in the defendant's right, in the defendant's request for an access order. This court specifically found that the prosecution embodied in the district attorney was not entitled to be present at the hearing where the trial court's grant of the <coughs> ex parte was at issue. The issue of jurisdiction, though it would not reveal any specific theories of the case the state contended, um, should have been open, the district attorney should have been present in that particular case, but this court found that regardless of whether or not the theories, the defense theories would have been discussed in that particular issue, the access order itself contained enough information um, that the hearing should have been ex parte. That access order at issue in Brantley would have contained the 
name and identity of the expert uh, or the consultant that was going to enter into the, the prison and the type of assessment that they would be conducting. Counsel, let me ask, are there any statutory provisions or cases that dictate what that access order must contain? So, Anything specifically that must, for example, and I, I would draw your attention to, to the, the Brooks case where, of course, um, the court was predominantly focused on the requirement that in order to access funding, the Roseboro case set out what you had to put in an order so that the judge could properly evaluate your need as an indigent defendant, correct? And that those things could potentially reveal trial strategies. So what is it about the application for access here that, is, that governs what must be included in the application? I know what was included, but Sir. is there anything that requires that that specificity be included in that order? No, to my knowledge, there's nothing as far as statutory uh, that guides that. Um, however, each prison and each county jail that I'm aware of requires an access order. So we have to petition the court in order to obtain an access order. So that, there is some show. That only require, is required for security purposes at the, at the detention facility so that the warden of that facility knows who's coming and can properly assess security risk, correct? Correct. This application included not only the names of the consultants, but also their disciplines, the types of testing and tools that they would be using. Is there anything that required that level of specificity in an access order? So each jail requires it, it requires an order in order for the consultant or the um, expert to bring in particular materials. And so what we would have to show is the tools that they are bringing into the court are necessary and are needed. And so the reason that we have to put and that we do put those things in the order is so we can explain why our expert would need those tools. In other words, we're explaining what type of testing is conducted. And so then we're listing out the instruments that would be needed in order to conduct that test in a way that the test results would be reliable and would be valid. Thank you. So the the same uh, the same I'm sorry the um, the same information was revealed in our case as would have been revealed in the Brantley case. And it's for that reason that we have enumerated uh, the error that occurred in this particular case. And this error occurred when the trial court on its own, sua sponte, revealed our access order to the state, which gave the state the names and identity of our consultants the nature of the consultants, the type of assessments that, that they would be conducting, as well as the instruments that they would be using and taking into the jail when they conducted their assessments. So I'm clear this, on, on kind of the sequence of events. Did the trial court actually sign sealing orders initially? So the trial court did not sign the sealing order. The trial court signed the ex parte order granting access, which had, which had a confidentiality clause in it. Okay, and you had you submitted separate sealing orders or? Yes, the sealing orders were all submitted uh, along with the orders. Council, the, one of the problems here is that the horse is kind of out of the barn now. So what remedy would you propose if we agree with you that uh, the 
trial court should have maintained this under seal and ex parte? Certainly. What we are asking is we're asking that this course court <coughs> remand this case back to the trial court with direction. We're asking that this court um, find that the trial court should have conducted the Brooks weighing test before it disclosed any of our confidential information. And we're asking this court to find that the state has no interest in the way that we conduct our mental health investigations or the consultants that, that we use. I, I mean, that's kind of, that, that may be academically correct, <coughs> but it's kind of an academic question <coughs> if there's no real remedy for your client. What, what is the remedy that you would propose to the trial court if we did remand? So the harm that's at issue here is not just what has already occurred, but what will occur. The nature of the order, what it does is it, it impairs our entire defense function. In other words, at this point, because the order uh, also says that we cannot submit ex parte um, access orders in the future of this nature, then what it does is we have to change the way that we are going to investigate our case going forward. And so we have to decide whether or not we are going to continue to investigate mental health and be forced to provide these uh, consultants and their identities to the state, or uh, whether or not we're going to have to forego that part of our investigation. So even though the state may have access to our, the identity of these consultants, um, the question now for this court also is whether or not they're going to be able to have access to all of our consultants going forward. And so that is for that reason that we are asking that this court remand the case with direction. We, at this what, point... What direction? Right. I mean, the, you said the order says that future requests can't be submitted ex parte. I don't see that. I mean, it says requests can't be ex parte, but it, it doesn't specifically speak to the future. So why isn't it moot at this point? Is it capable of repetition? Are you planning to seek more orders? Well, it is capable of repetition. I think that the order suggests that the access um, that we requested in this particular case does not meet the ex parte standard as applied. So it certainly um, appears that we will not be able to petition the court for a confidential ex parte access order we, in the if future. We reversed, if we reversed and said that Brantley applies, as you suggest, that Zant B. Brantley applies, that the order was permitted to be submitted ex parte, should have been sealed, <coughs> Prosecuting attorney should not have been notified of it. Does that not remedy future, the future behavior of it, the orders, similar orders for purposes of evaluations? It does remember the future behaviors, it does. But I understood that your relief that you were actually requesting was beyond just a reversal. You wanted this remand to somehow give instructions to the trial court. And I'm curious, what are we supposed to tell Judge Lim or other judges um, that a reversal doesn't tell them? I, the only thing that we are asking specifically is is that this court direct them to apply the Brooks and Brantley standard, which is what a reversal in this particular situation would do. Well, you wouldn't agree that the entirety of the of the Brantley or the Brooks standard should be applied because they're going to argue that you didn't follow the procedure enumerated in Brooks for applying, correct? I believe that the procedure enumerated in Brooks permits us to appear in chambers ex parte with our motion, and we did comply with that. But they argue that the procedure of Brooks was not followed because they were not given an opportunity to file a reply brief, the, and the proceedings ex parte were not taken down and transcribed. I believe that Brooks permits us to file our ex parte um, 
our motion in chambers. And then the Brooks procedure permits the trial court to open up any particular uh, interest that it feels that the state may have. Well, the only interest that was enumerated in Brooks was to determine the efficacy of whether or not this indigent defendant in Brooks needed the state to pay for his evaluation, correct? That is correct. So the, what Brooks, what the court said in Brooks was that when you're going to implicate state funds, the state has a legitimate interest in that vis-a-vis -vis the, pro the prosecuting attorney's office. So they need to be notified, at least for no other purposes, to determine in a hearing the d indigency d status of the defendant, correct? Certainly. That's not present here in your case. Right, and, and that is our position that the state had no interest in, in our access order, which is why we presented it in chambers ex parte. Yeah. And, Do sorry. they have a right to know that you're filing something ex parte? I mean, normally the docket, in any case, if something's sealed, has to include notice that something sealed was filed and usually enough about it that if somebody wants to complain about it, whether it's the opposing party or the public or the media, they have an opportunity to go to the court. I, I believe that the Brooks procedure allows us to file it ex parte without notification to uh, the district attorney's office in our particular case. I think that we're that running- Notification of, of what exactly? I mean, I can understand why you don't have to provide all the information you're now complaining was released, but do you have to at least file it so that it shows, you know, sealed document regarding um, expert access to defendants or something like that so that the, if the state has an interest they have an opportunity to weigh in? I, I don't believe that the Brooks procedure specifically lays out any requirements of that nature. I think that the Brooks procedure uh, permits us to file it ex parte in chambers, and should there be any um, any interest that the state may have, then, then the court would be uh, allowed to give the state uh, the opportunity to well, respond. But how would the state know if it had any interest? I believe that the court is, is in the position, best suited position to weigh that interest. We hailed in Brooks. We affirm the trial court's order that an application for funds be presented to the court in chambers. The matter will be heard ex parte. But the next sentence says the state may submit a brief which will be considered at the time of the ex parte hearing. The ex parte, ex parte proceedings shall be reported and transcribed as part of the record, but shall be sealed in the same manner as those items are examined in camera. So it sets forth a procedure at least for applications for funds for an indigent defendant to hire a competency evaluator. Correct? Yes, and I believe that procedure was set forth uh, and the briefing that was referred to in that particular case was regarding uh, the funding issue um, and the indigency issue And that's um, because the we held in Brooks that the state has a legitimate interest in the expenditure of state funds for indigent defendants. And so they ought to have the right to object or at least to cross-examine the defendant at such a hearing to determine if they are indeed indigent. Right? Certainly notwithstanding that some of this might reveal trial strategy, right? That was the concern, the overarching concern of all of these cases. The overarching concern on behalf of the defendant was whether or not it would reveal or could reveal trial strategy, yes. That procedure in Brooks was not followed in Brantley, correct? 
that procedure in Brooks for notifying the state, giving them a chance to cross-examine on indigency, that, those issues weren't prevalent in Brooks. There was no interest in our, there was no indigency interest in our particular case, and so our position is that the state had no interest in our ex parte order. Otherwise, you're gonna run into a slippery slope as uh, what information is obtained and what we should, should inform the state that we're asking for. There's a, a large number of issues that uh, we could be asking for that by placing that um, in a filing, would present potential problems. I know and the chief had a question. I have one after that. My recollection. Words sitting there, and I know that, but I've tried a couple, well, three death penalty cases, gavel to gavel. It was usually a request ex parte for an ex parte, and quite often I think a hearing was held on the whether or not things should happen. Certainly you can't go into trial strategy, but isn't that the normal course a lot of times that you would have a hearing to determine the necessity of something? Our normal, our normal course in, in the capital cases that we have set forth is, is the exact same procedure that we have used in this particular case where we submit an ex parte order in chambers. And you never, and, and, and nobody ever hears about it on the other side at all in any way. That's correct, Your Honor. Well, let me do, I'm just concerned, putting aside the other side's interest, what about just yeah. the public's interest in not having the docket show what's happening in a case? I understand you can protect the information, but does the docket even show ex parte filing? Uh, the docket would, if you were to go to the docket, it would show um, the, right. the ceiling of the ex parte filing. It would show that, yes. The, in this case, the judge filed a filing of motions, which was not sealed. That's what did correct. that filing of motions say? That filing of motions that he filed lists out each motion that we had filed elect, um, in, in ex parte in chambers. It had the complete title attached to that were all of our filings. It contained all of our motions and the orders within it. Typically, when you when you pull up a docket, when we have filed an ex parte filing, you will see, and, and it'll be numbered. It'll say ex parte motion number, and it'll say that there's a sealed filing contained within the packet, and the packet itself would be sealed. The and problem with the filing of the motions was that he attached the motions, which, were sh which should have been sealed. That's correct. Because it appears in Brooks that the the question that the state was given the benefit of cross-examination on was the indigency of the particular person rather than the nature or importance of the evidence. Is that understanding correct? The Brooks issue was, yes, the state, the only conceivable interest that the state would have had in that particular case was whether or not the client was indigent. And so is it your position that once indigency is established that the state wouldn't need to keep questioning that each each time this, the, that you have an ex parte request? Yes, that would be my position. But going back to the procedure that the trial short should always conduct is they should conduct the Brooks weighing test. Once we file an ex parte filing, and, and then what they should do is they should weigh the different interests. The defendant's right to confidentially investigate their case versus any interest that the state may have in knowing what we're doing and participating in that particular hearing. And in this particular case, the state has no interest in knowing what we are doing in our investigation of our case. And you put out that the, the prison requires information about this person coming in. If that information, I assume, gets sent to the prison, whether or not the the particular defendant is indigent, correct? The same, the access order would be required for anyone who would be housed in the, in the prison or in this particular situation, the um, county sheriff's department. And what access does the state or the public have to that ordinary access order that is filed for any 
any person. Any person. There's a confidential confidentiality clause within the order that says that it cannot be shared. The contents of the order cannot be shared. With anyone outside the With prison. anyone else. Okay. And with that, I'd like to reserve my remaining, remaining balance. My time. Thank you, Ms. Weiss. Ms. Tover for the uh, appellee. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Jordan Stover. I'm the assistant DA um, on this case. Um, this is a case where the defense counsel actually got exactly what they asked for. They asked for access to their client at the jail, and that's it. No, but it they asked for confidentiality of it to protect their defense strategy. They put one sentence as to confidentiality at the end of the agreement that says that nothing can be shared without direction from the court, but here it's the court that actually distributed the list. Didn't they also file a sealing motion? There is nothing in the record to indicate that. Um, actually, Judge Lim filed the filing of motions document um, and it was distributed on uh, June 30th of 2017. Ms. Bice actually just said that it contained everything in it. Um, it does not include a sealing order. Nothing was said about a sealing order until the list was distributed and then on July 5th, we get their brief stating that it should have been sealed, that the sealing order wasn't signed. There's nothing else in the record to indicate that the sealing order was presented to Judge Lim. Do you think that if he'd gotten a sealing order, would it have been appropriate in your view for him to file that, for him to exercise that? I don't think so. I mean, it would have been in his discretion, but there's nothing. The defense in this case hasn't presented anything, any case law to support their argument that this was required to be ex parte to begin with. Yes, they have. What, what is the state's, in, I mean, what, there are lots of cases that say defense strategy can be protected, including Brantley, as well as the cases about funding. Those, ca those cases are about the protection of defense strategy. Yes, but nothing in this revealed defense strategy. Basically, all we got were names of experts. You got names, you got their disciplines, you got what tests they wanted to pr perform. Would you get any of that stuff before trial otherwise, particularly if they use those experts, those experts came up, say, with negative information and they didn't want to use them at trial. Would the state be entitled to receive any of that information? Well, I don't think that it's something that should be sealed from this. That's a yes or no question. Would the state be entitled to receive any of that defense information about how it conducted its pretrial strategy and investigation, um, except that they had the sealing, the order unsealed? We would not be entitled to it in reciprocal discovery, no. Um, however, again, here, they didn't. The Brooks case that they cite so much does not apply here. I mean, the Brooks case deals with applying for funding, which requires putting up some kind of showing as to why they need an expert. You have even less, the state has some minimal interest in funding to at least make sure the taxpayer's money isn't being misspent. What is the state's interest in knowing, once you've incarcerated a defendant, depriving them of the ability to investigate unless people can get to them, what is the state's interest in knowing what experts are going to see the defendant? Other than the potential, you know, state funding issues, I mean... There are no state funding issues now regarding that, right? Yes, Your Honor, but with the remedy that they're proposing, there could be. Put aside that, what is the state's interest in 
knowing what defense experts are going to see an incarcerated defendant? We don't necessarily have an interest in that. Okay, so what interest do you have in their ex parte order to allow that, which is only necessary because the states locked the person up? It's not that we have an interest in it. It just doesn't give any more trial strategy than anything else. I mean, if we had just gotten a name in the order, I mean, anybody can Google a name. Anybody can Facebook an ordinary witness and find out information about them. Could you subpoena the defense and say, tell us all of the experts you are consulting in your case? No. Okay, then why are you entitled to that information? Because they have to file an order to get to the defendant. We're not entitled to the information, but the way that they went about this, they did not present, there's nothing on the record to suggest that they filed the sealing order. They didn't follow the correct procedure. What's they the procedure for a matter involving a request for an ex parte hearing that does not implicate an indigent defendant and a request for funds? What is the procedure? Well, I still think that they have to follow the Brooks procedure. Which just, is what? Just as a safeguard, they have somehow the state has to be notified that there is an ex parte communication going on, that we have the chance to submit a brief. And Brooks, Brooks said you had to do that because the state had an interest in the expenditure of state funds. To Justice Namius's point, what is the state's interest in this case that would implicate the Brooks procedure? Again, it's our issue is with the remedy here. The, as Justice Blackwell said, the horse is out of the barn. They didn't file the sealing order. It just wasn't done. Well, let me, let me, and it didn't get filed. Let me ask you about that. When the order was sent out by the court, did they promptly reach out to your office and say the court should not have sent that to you? Don't look at it? Not to my knowledge, no. And nothing was filed until five days later. I still think that the Brooks procedure has to be followed just so that we know that something's going on. Um, I mean, we don't know what the state's interest would be in future situations. We have no idea, but that's why that we should be notified. They didn't email your yeah. office asking you not to, not to look at the motions and, and consider them? I apologize, can you repeat that question? Once, once the trial court <laughs> disclosed or put the orders on the record, and serve them on your office, and right? Yes, Judge. Did, did defense counsel immediately object via email and request that the state delete it, the order until defense counsel could litigate the issue? Not to my knowledge. We understand, or I understand, that they immediately objected by email to the court are you aware of that? No. Okay. So you're not aware of any objection. When did you first learn that the, that the defense was objecting to the court having filed these documents? When we received the brief on July 5th. In when was that in relation to when the orders were filed? The orders were filed June 30th. So five days later? Yes. <coughs> I think there's a different question between whether or not they followed the right procedure the last time, set that aside. But supposing that an order, a, a request to file something under seal was filed, is it your position that the state should or should not have access to these materials that they're asking to keep under seal? 
what materials, the actual the information about which experts they're seeking entry into the prison for and what tests those experts are planning to perform. The state doesn't necessarily say that we have, that we're entitled to that information. The point is here that it was put out, it was put <coughs> out by them that the sealing order wasn't presented. The court turned it over, the horse is out of the barn. And I don't think the remedy to that is to just say, well, all future procedures should be relating to mental health should be ex parte. The state still has, the state still has an interest in funding. There's what, still what a jail. What is the interest in funding? It, does this, where does the money come from for these experts? I assume that the Capitol Defender's Office has a fund for that. I, uh, to okay. be honest, and, I don't. And what is the state's interest? I mean, the legislature can audit that and figure out if, if it's being misspent. What is, what is the DA's interest in the funding here? I mean, there was, there's an interest before because it used to come out of county budgets and other things, but what's the interest now? You keep saying the interest in funding. What is it? Just to make, I mean, just to be, we're the ones that are involved in the case. We're the ones, to my, I don't know. I mean, to be honest with the court, I don't know if anybody audits that, but we are the ones dealing with the case on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's still an interest. So, so let's say you said this is a ridiculous expenditure of money, outrageous expenditure. Can the trial court even control the funding decision of the Capitol Defenders now with experts? Does the trial court have the authority to tell the capital defenders they can't spend their money the way they think, see fit? I don't know the answer to that. I can brief it if the court will allow me to. I, I wasn't prepared to answer that question as to where the funding comes from. Well, you, except that you're saying your interest is in the funding. Well, under the Brooks case, that, that is the interest. I mean, that's the, the procedure that was laid out. But Brantley's been decided since Brooks. And yes. you would agree that Brantley, this court in Brantley, extended the Brooks um, position further than just in cases involving applications for funding for competency evaluations, correct? Because Brantley didn't involve that. That's true. And in Brantley, we did not espouse nor adopt a procedure similar to that in Brooks. In the Brantley case, it, we simply hailed, it's important that the defendant's theory of case not be revealed to the prosecution. Therefore, the prosecution embodied in the district attorney was not entitled to be present at the hearing where the trial court's grant of the defendant's motion was at issue. Why does that just not resolve this case? Well, it takes Brooks to another level, does it not? I don't think that it necessarily does. The main holding in the Zant case had to do with the issue of the gag order and whether or not the trial court had the authority to put the gag order on the prison. We don't dispute that. There was no gag order presented in this case. There was one paragraph at the very end that kind of briefly addressed the issue, compared the case to Brooks. There were no extensive facts given, nothing like that. The court didn't make any point of expanding Brooks. It just compared that case to Brooks and held that that that, I mean, that it was okay in that case. Did the, I'll ask opposing counsel this too, but the order submitted to the court that's in the record, I don't have it in front of me. Does it ask that the court keep the information confidential? I don't care the, if it asks it with 42 paragraphs. Does it say in the order that it would be kept confidential? It says, I'd like to look at the exact wording of it. Um, 
it says that it shall be considered confidential and shall not be disclosed until such direction from the court. There, it has a confidentiality clause in it. It's very vague. It, again, the judge is the one in this case that, um, that distributed the motions and the orders. Um, could that be considered a gag order? Maybe, but a specific gag order wasn't presented in this case. It, it doesn't direct anything to the sheriff's office. It doesn't direct anything to anybody. It's just kind of a little vague statement at the very end um, where it could have been more specific. They could have filed a separate motion. I mean, they could have filed a sealing order. They simply didn't. I think the remedy in this case going forward is that they file things in a more timely manner. If a trial court signs an order that says this will be kept confidential, does the trial court have an obligation before undoing that to give the party that, uh, that presented the order the opportunity to weigh in? Well, again, it says unless directed by the court, and the court is the one that released it. So here, I, I don't think they necessarily violated the order. And again, just as to the remedy in this case, I mean, they, Ms. Bice stated that this would change the way that they investigate their case. I think it just needs to change their procedures and how they defend their case. Um, a sealing order, if they want it to be sealed, should be presented in a timely manner. A, um, a gag order, a specific gag order, if they want a gag order, should be presented. Um, they should follow the Brooks procedure and so that there's something to look back on. There's a transcript. I mean, if nothing else, there's Why, if they're just presenting a written order, does there need to be a, what is there going to be a transcript of if you're presenting a written order to the court? Well, if there's not a hearing, if it's just a written order to the court, then that should be reflected somewhere. I mean, okay. we're here. So, we have no idea what happened at this hearing. Was it a hearing or was it not? We don't know. Well, you keep asserting it was a hearing, but they're asserting that it was just they presented <clears throat> the order to the court. Well, I mean, the way that, you know, everything has come out, it seems like there was a hearing, but there's no transcript. So we don't know exactly what was done and when it, I mean, we have no idea. How do you know what was done in Brantley? Was there a transcript in Brantley? No, there was no transcript was in Brantley. Was there a requirement that it be transcribed in Brantley? No. Was there a requirement in Brantley that we said that in those instances elaborated on in Brantley that the DA was supposed to get notice of it, of the ex parte application beforehand? None of that was listed out in the Brantley decision, but again, the court, with all due respect, made no point of expanding Brooks either. It was just a brief paragraph it's hard for me to imagine that you said that three or four times now that that Brantley does not expand Brooks and I don't know how anyone reading Brantley could not conclude that it expands Brooks a it does not involve an application for funding so this involves a completely different issue and nowhere in Brantley do we discuss the procedures set out in Brooks in fact to the contrary this court since 1992 this case has not been overturned has held in those instances, there is no requirement to notify the state. So it's hard for me to imagine how the state's position here is that Brantley did not expand Brooks. It's clearly expanded Brooks. The question is, did it do so properly or not? And the, you're, you're articulating that maybe we got it wrong in Brooks and Brantley. Maybe Brantley should have said 
even in cases where we're not where the defendant is not asking for indigent funds to be expended in the state therefore has a legitimate interest there should still be a procedure and the procedure should be notify the da give the day an opportunity to brief it and transcribe it so that there is a record of it but that's nowhere in brown well it is the state's position that if that was the intention in Zant versus Brantley that it was wrongly decided and should have been, should have complied with Brooks. Um, it doesn't, like I said, my reading of it, it doesn't specifically expand Brooks. However, if that was the intent of the court, then with all due respect, we disagree with that. Counsel, if, if a prosecuting attorney receives from the court or anybody else an order that references defense ex parte motions that the prosecuting attorney didn't know anything about and then says in the last line it's ordered that this order shall be considered confidential and shall not be disclosed would a reasonable prosecuting attorney not think that perhaps this has been inadvertently disclosed to me and take some steps to ascertain whether this is something they're supposed to have before they make any use of it well the state has made no use of it um we simply received the orders. Um, the, that last line was at the very bottom. We had no, I mean, it said at the direction of the court, we received it from the judge. I mean, the state has done nothing to make any use of any of this. We're not allowed to, which is, I mean, just another, the state's no better off from any of this. We're not allowed to contact these witnesses. We're not allowed to subpoena their records. We're not allowed to do any of that. According to why? Now that you know their names, what I mean, it's probably good practice not That's to totally do wrong. it. Totally wrong. We're not suggesting but, that you should yeah. do that. But who told you? Who ordered you that you can't contact these experts now? Well, there's no specific court order, but just under, I mean, the general rules is my understanding that we're not allowed to do that. And I can cite that for the court in a brief, if if your honor would like. But I mean, we're not allowed. We would not contact them. We have no problem with the court issuing an order telling us not to. Um, we're, we're not supposed to anyway. But you do know their disciplines. You know their names. You can do research to be prepared for cross to the extent that they are called and they may not be called, correct? Yes, but if they're not called, we're, we've got nothing. And if they are called, we would have to be provided with those names anyway in reciprocal discovery. You also know what their, what their disciplines are, so you know precisely somewhat, at least, what the defense angle is with respect to the type of mental incapacity, if there is one, correct? Yes, but we don't know if they intend to use it for defense or mitigation or any of that. We have, we have no idea. You, you do know what tools they're going to use to evaluate and what they're going to evaluate because that information was included in the motion that was not sealed, correct? Yes. Would you have any of that, any of that whatsoever or the right to any of that prior to the disclosure of witnesses prior to trial, absent this alleged mistake? No, but again, we're not... I mean, like I said, we have no problem with the court issuing an order telling us not to contact these people. I mean, again, the horse is out of the barn. It's out there. It's, again, we're it's also kind of talking about future, future requests, which counsel have indicated that they plan to make for different experts. And the horse is not out of the barn for those. That's correct. And that would be, I mean, all they would have to do is follow the correct procedure for that. It would be up to the trial judge and his discretion and what he releases and doesn't release. Um, in Brooks, it says that the judge has the discretion to hold some issues for a separate hearing where the state is present if he determines that that's necessary. That's, 
I mean, if, if the judge uses his discretion to say that that's ex parte, we have no access to that. Ms. Stubble, let me just ask you a practical question. In, in the circuit, um, in, in the, the, this case is involved in, uh, is there a, a general period of time in which the court requires the uh, notification of witnesses that may be called for, for each side? Do they do that? Yes, Your Honor. And, and, and well, how far in advance of trial would that be? Um, Generally, <laughs> if you can recall. The Judge Lim actually has a scheduling order requiring discovery to be turned over, and I did not bring one of those with me to tell me the exact dates. Um, but generally, in a case like this, it's especially with the experts, it's well in advance of trial. It would not be a eve of trial type of notice. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Byes. Thank you. Byes, talk to me a little bit about this. When you go to get ex parte orders, do they never sometimes bring in a ring in a court reporter, take down what you say when you tell the judge, and you take that little, they're taking it by stenotype and seal it? I mean, it seems it, like, I just remember practical things that were done that took care of a lot. Typically, the way that it happens in, in currently. That way, that way there is a record, because later when it comes up here, it may be a question. Certainly, Your Honor. And, and the way it happened uh, in this particular case and the way that it's happened in the past in a lot of the cases that I've been involved in is we appear in chambers. We take our ex parte order along with the sealing order and the entire packet. But we there isn't a reporter that takes anything down. Like, this is what's asked. And we put it in the envelope and we see it and we put the seal on it and all that. There, there, is, there is not in, in, um, in this particular case, there was not. And typically what happens is the court will then take it under advisement. They will review the documents that we have submitted to them and then they will let us know. And what happened in this case is he reviewed the documents. He then served us uh, by email with the, the one order that had the confidentiality clause. And then uh, shortly thereafter, he just filed everything what, on his was own. Was there a sealing order? There was a sealing order that was presented. Where, where is it? It is in the judge's chambers, Your Honor. Why isn't it in the record? Uh, Your Honor, the, I, it's in the judge's chambers. He never returned it. He never signed it. He um, didn't do anything with it. We filed a motion uh, and a brief where we were requesting a hearing where we could come and have this hearing, and we were denied that opportunity. Right, but where, so why didn't you ask the court to put the sealing record into the record? I mean, the sealing order into the record. Your Honor, we... In retrospect, uh, should have done that. I understand when you immediately found out that the judge had filed these without being sealed, that you notified the court via email, and I believe your brief states that you notified, asked the court to order the state to delete the email. That is correct, Your Honor. Why did you not contact the state directly? The state was um, also included in that email. Okay. Is that, that email in the record? Um, I believe the email is referenced uh, in the record. I would have to take a look and uh, see if I can pull that out the That was the same email where you asked the court to hold a hearing where you could give the court relevant information and case law on how to conduct ex parte hearings? It is that same hearing, Your Honor, and uh, Ms. Stover may not have about, been. Finish that statement, the time is about up. Ms. Stover may not have been in the up. email, okay. but, but the district attorney was. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Bice, and thank you, Ms. Stover, for your argument. We appreciate that. Thank you for your appearance, ladies and gentlemen. Please be safe going back. Thanks very much.